Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hello, my precious Lincoln. Mom and Daddy are here. And my son. Oh, you're fighting so hard. We're so proud of you. Welcome to Right Lane, a podcast of the Tampa Bay Times. Each week, Times reporter Lane DeGregory discusses her stories and answers your questions. The focus is on craft. My name is Maria Corillo, and I'm the Enterprise Editor at the Times. Today, we're going to continue to discuss Lincoln Shot, our eight-part special serial narrative. You can read the entire series at tampabay.com slash Shot. But here on the podcast, we're walking through the chapters one by one. And it starts with a reading from Lane. This is Chapter 3. Today's topic, The Boy. He couldn't coo or cry, couldn't move his mouth to smile. Three months after Lincoln DeLuna was born, he still didn't even seem to focus on his parents' faces. They believed he was in there, that his mind was fine. He wasn't just a vegetable, as one nurse said. But they had to show everyone he was worth saving. We can outsource his breathing and eating, his dad, Anthony DeLuna, told Lincoln's mom, Maggie Hall German. His brain is up to us. Lincoln's first summer in 2014, Maggie and Anthony got new jobs with Humana Insurance, her as a social worker, him in IT. They got raises and were able to work from home. They moved from their small third-floor apartment to a rental house in a winding Tampa suburb. It had an open floor plan and four bedrooms so they'd each have an office, and Maggie's younger sister, Katie German, could move in to help care for Lincoln. They turned the living room into a nursery, set the crib in the center, everything always revolving around their son. He'd been born with a fatal genetic defect, X-linked myotubular myopathy, and every day he was defying the odds. In their new home, they tucked him in between Winnie the Pooh bumpers and put a stuffed owl and tigger at his feet, popped a frog pacifier between his lips. On the wall beside the TV, they nailed a whiteboard charting the dozen medications that flowed through his feeding tube. Robinol, Prisolec, Albuterol, Marilex, Motrin, Benadryl. Another column tracked his bowel movements, a third his mealtimes and amounts. Anthony buried his cello in the corner, behind the medical stroller. Maggie framed her ballet shoes. Above a window, they hung a wooden plaque. Hope is the ability to hear the music of the future. Faith is the courage to dance to it today. When Anthony or Katie took the night shift, Maggie woke up listening for the reassuring whoosh of the ventilator, counting its breaths. Twenty-five per minute meant Lincoln was stable. Then, before she got out of bed, she would beg God, Please, not today. Don't take him today. Bright lights hurt Lincoln's eyes, so Maggie and Anthony kept their new house dark. Warm air made it harder for him to breathe so the air conditioning was a constant 70 degrees. They learned to sterilize trach tubes and humidifiers, to listen for blockages through a stethoscope and clear mucus plugs, to rub their son's belly to help him poop. 
Every 90 minutes, he needed a new bag of feeding formula. Every half hour, lip balm. Every 10 minutes, they had to suction his mouth and nose. They worried about infection and respiratory distress. What if the power went out or something went wrong with one of the machines? What if he just stopped breathing? They wondered how much pain he was in. They learned to read the signs and wipe his silent tears. Anthony memorized the manual for the ventilator, then ordered the doctor's version so he would know all they knew. He discovered how to download Lincoln's breathing patterns, learned when to increase his oxygen intake, mastered all six modes of the machine. Maggie maneuvered through the tangle of Medicaid. During the first few months, their bills topped $2 million. They kept working to contribute as they could and tried not to think about what insurance wouldn't cover. Round-the-clock nursing, an approved expense, cost $30,000 a month. Formula was 11000 The power bill topped four fifty. Nursing help was sporadic, overnight shifts almost impossible to fill, and Maggie and Anthony often found themselves alone on weekends. Thank goodness for Katie. She was 24, studying to get into school to become a physician's assistant. She swore that because she might carry her family's curse, she didn't want kids. She'd never been tested. Katie adored Lincoln and spent late nights and long weekends bending over his crib. She called herself Aunt Kit Kat and spoke to her nephew in a high sing-song voice. Who's your favorite auntie? Who loves you mostest? They left the front door unlocked for the stream of nurses and therapists, equipment specialists, and UPS drivers. The garage filled with boxes of trach tubes, surgical tape, oxygen tanks, and powdered food. A ventilator constantly forced air into Lincoln's lungs. He couldn't be off it for more than a half hour, couldn't be outside for more than five minutes. His body couldn't handle the heat and humidity. To take him out, they had to start the van, run the air conditioning on high, and pack all of his equipment before they could unplug him from the machines and carry him quickly into the garage and ease him into his car seat. So they almost never left the house, except to go to a doctor's appointment. He had 26 in his first four months. Most evenings, Maggie and Anthony ordered pizza or picked up Panera. Even when Katie babysat so they could go out for dinner, they wouldn't travel more than five miles. Just in case. Alarms were always screaming. They kept having to steal themselves somehow to not freak out, at least not in front of Lincoln. They grew confident that they could handle whatever crisis came up better than paramedics who knew nothing about his disease. So when Lincoln stopped breathing, Maggie did CPR while Anthony adjusted the ventilator settings. When he choked on a mucus plug, Maggie slid a tube down his throat. Anthony tapped on his back, and they suctioned it out themselves. It's okay. Mommy and Daddy are here, they'd tell Lincoln. It's going to be okay. After each time they revived him, Maggie collapsed. She called it falling into the rabbit hole. Anthony would wait a while, then drag her out and hold her until she stopped shaking. Then, if a nurse or Katie was there, Maggie and Anthony would retreat to their room, lie side by side beneath their comforter, and stay as motionless as possible for as long as they could, trying to imagine what it felt like to be Lincoln, to not be able to turn on your side, scratch your nose, or make a sound. Lincoln was four months old when Maggie and Anthony first drove the two hours to Gainesville to a research clinic at the University of Florida. Allison Fraze, whose son had died from the same disease, knew doctors there were studying boys like Lincoln. During the day-long visit, a half-dozen doctors flipped through the two-inch thick binder of medical records that Maggie had organized. They scoured her family's genetic history, asked about her deceased brother. They x-rayed Lincoln's spine, did an ultrasound on his liver, monitored his heart rate, put him through a series of breathing tests on and off the ventilator, stuck him a dozen times searching for a vein to draw blood. Through it all, Maggie mopped Lincoln's eyes, 
wondering if it was worth it, putting him through more pain. We're trying to start a baseline for these boys so we can form a database, one researcher told them. Would you be willing to bring Lincoln back every few months? Ultimately, the scientists told Maggie and Anthony they were hoping the UF would be part of an international clinical trial for gene therapy, the same treatment that had saved the sick dogs. Of course, boys aren't dogs, another scientist warned. The experimental process could help immensely, or it could harm the boys, even kill them. During the long drive back to Tampa, Maggie and Anthony traded questions, wondering for the first time if the treatment would be worth the risk. What if it made Lincoln suffer more? What if they sacrificed precious time? But didn't they have to try everything they could to help him? Lincoln was okay for now, Maggie said, thriving with a terminal illness. How could they gamble losing him? Anthony answered, how could they not at least give him a chance to live off life support? They settled into a hectic routine, tried to stop fearing the future and enjoy whatever time they had with their son. They refused to plan for anything past the weekend. They filled a bookcase with Dr. Seuss stories, sang Old MacDonald and Twinkle Twinkle, played Bruno Mars videos on their phones and boogied around his bed. They encouraged him to reach for a rubber duck, kick at a Nerf football, bad objects they strung across his crib on a baby gym. Lincoln seemed uninterested or unable. Until one morning when he was six months old, the nurse hadn't shown up, so Katie was sitting by the crib. Suddenly, she sprang into Maggie's office, grabbed her arm, and whispered, Come here. Look at Lincoln. He'd pulled a small round mirror off the bar above his bed and was holding it in his right hand. When Katie crept up behind him, he tilted the mirror until he saw her. Oh, my God, Maggie cried. Lincoln, do you see Katie? Slowly, deliberately, he turned the mirror to find his mother's face. For the first time, she saw him see her. Maggie and Anthony were always exhausted, rarely alone. She was back on the pill, keeping her promise to avoid the family curse. But that summer of 2014, even though they'd been so careful, she missed her period, then missed it again. Anthony bought a drugstore test, then went back for two more. They both broke down in the bathroom. There was a 50% chance they would have a girl, and if they had another boy a 50% chance that he would have the same genetic mutation as Lincoln. So a 75% chance this baby would be okay. They didn't tell their parents. Maggie made Anthony promise, not until we know. At 14 weeks, a geneticist drew blood from the fetus. They were having a boy, just like Lincoln. Maggie couldn't catch her breath. Anthony had to help her to the car. That night, through tears, they thought through their future. Lincoln was nine months old. It was a full-time job, a constant struggle to keep him alive. Even if the second son survived, he would have as many needs, maybe more. How could they ever care for two? It felt like Sophie's choice, a mother having to sacrifice one child to save the other. Doesn't even feel like I have a choice, Maggie told Anthony. It's not about us. It's about Lincoln. They named their unborn baby Leighton and grieved the brother he might have become. Outside the abortion clinic, protesters pumped their fists and shouted at Maggie through bullhorns. Murderer! Baby killer! She hid her wet face in Anthony's neck. He wrapped his arm around her. They don't know, he kept murmuring. They don't understand. He wanted to yell at these strangers. Leave us alone. We don't want to be here. Instead, he pulled Maggie closer and stroked her hair. They didn't talk all the way home. Later, when they called their families, Maggie's aunt was relieved. You did what you had to do. 
Anthony's mom was furious. How could you kill my grandson? This time the rabbit hole was too deep. Anthony tried to drag Maggie out, but her guilt was crippling. She couldn't sleep, wouldn't talk. For three months she wept and ate donuts, refused to leave the house. Anthony called in a therapist. Depression, agoraphobia, plus PTSD. The doctor prescribed antidepressants, anti-anxiety medications, and said, give her a while. So Anthony did. But after another month, when Maggie was still barely interacting with anyone, not even her son, Anthony couldn't wait any longer. You have to come back and go on, he told her. Lincoln needs you. Slowly, Maggie hauled herself out and pushed forward. She knew Anthony hadn't wanted to get married because of all his dad's divorces. But after all they'd been through, after keeping Lincoln alive and losing Leighton, Maggie wanted to officially be a family. Anthony would have done anything to make her happy. So he took her to Sam's Club, where she picked out a blue topaz ring, Lincoln's birthstone. Then he called his grandmother. Could they have a wedding in her gazebo? Just before Thanksgiving, their families gathered on the grassy banks of Lake Allen and Lutz. Maggie wore a sleeveless lace gown and long veil. She dressed Lincoln, who was almost a year old, in a cobalt dress shirt, black vest, and, for the first time, long pants. Katie carried him outside for a few minutes and plugged in his portable ventilator so we could watch his parents say their vows. They honeymooned at home, sharing champagne with nurses. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. ...to their son. By then, Lincoln could move both hands a bit, hold soft toys, and tip his chin. He was nowhere near meeting ordinary milestones, but he was able to interact with others and react to his world. Maggie taught him to cover his eyes for peekaboo. Anthony showed him how to high-five. Lincoln learned to curl two fingers into rabbit ears and bounce them when his parents sang Little Bunny Foo-Foo. He started waving slightly when they came near his crib. With a lot of work, he learned to fold down the two middle fingers on his right hand, arc his thin thumb, and sign, I love you. Whenever he did, Maggie cried. They didn't throw a birthday party for Lincoln that December. He was still here. That was enough. In May 2015, they got an email. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration had agreed to let a San Francisco biomedical company start tracking boys with X-linked myotubular myopathy. Four hospitals across the country, including at UF, were going to start putting patients through a series of tests. Eventually, that information could convince the federal government to approve a clinical trial, the first sanctioned gene therapy in almost 20 years. The study was going to enroll 16 boys, Doctors at UF asked Maggie and Anthony, do you want to sign up Lincoln? Again, they answered with their own questions. What if we do it and he fails, Maggie asked Anthony. How could we live with ourselves? What if, Anthony said, our son could stand up and run to us? Allison Fraze called ecstatic. After so many setbacks, after all this time, she couldn't believe it was actually happening. Can you imagine, she asked Maggie, if your son got the first dose? That night, Maggie scrolled through Facebook, searching posts from other XLM team families whose sons had died. The disease, she knew, was progressive and terminal. 
the longer Lincoln lived, the more he died. Even if gene therapy didn't cure him, even if it just allowed him to breathe on his own or turn his head, how could they deny him that shot? The next morning, she emailed UF and enrolled Lincoln. Man, it's hard to read, huh? <laughs> it's living it all over again. Living it all over again. Oh, so I was I was taking notes as you were as you were reading it because I was sort of thinking about some of the things that we talked about and went through and um, and obviously uh, one of the toughest things I think was choosing the scenes because you had so many good ones and trying to pick be really selective and like the mirror scene was so amazing and so it had to be there it was such a it was such a moment of truth. I mean, to realize that he was in there, that he was capable of some things and connecting, and and so there's there's some obvious ones I think that just jump out. Um, but you're Lane, and so you come back with a ton of them. Um, but the bedroom scene too, to me, the idea that these people that still gets me that that they would lay in bed and they would not move and they would think about what their son was going through. I mean. That had me crying when they told me that. I mean, the, the two things I remember Maggie told me almost the first couple times I was with her was when that part about from the chapter one when she was a little girl and she would hold her hand over her mouth to make sure she was still breathing mm-hmm. and then lying in bed and trying not to move to, to try to see what that was like. I mean, those were so impactful for me. I know how I felt at the moment I heard that. And so there's like big stars and squiggles in my notebook, like this scene, this is going in there, you know. I, I know I've said this before in this in the podcast, but I mean I um, people are always talking to me about your writing and how what a beautiful writer you are. Um, but to me, when I when you're sitting there reading all of this and I am really taking in all this reporting that you have brought back, you know the commitment that you've clearly made to sit there and bring just I mean this is the what you're reading is like what five ten percent of what you reported. I mean. There's so much more people. Um, this could easily have been a book, you know. Um, and but I just think that that's such a good lesson for everybody because you can't shortchange that. You know, the reporting is everything. The reporting is absolutely everything. And you know, for you to come back and, you know, you got little bunny Fufu, you got them dancing to Bruno Mars, you got them laying in bed like that. You've got you know all of these things. Even even the dialogue with Katie. And Maggie in that moment when, you know, Lincoln discovers the mirror. I mean, all of that. It's so much work. But without it, like, you know, you can't write your way around all of that. You know, that's that's what drives the story. So anyway, I'm just well, I'm that always was all recreated, too, because yeah, this, this you're drawing it out of them. One and right. I met him when he was two. Right. So, you're drawing yeah. them. You're drawing all that out of them. But I mean, I'm just I'm just struck. And it's nice to hear you listen. It's nice to listen to Lane to Gregory. Uh, because you, you, I, you just again. I'm just reminded of like how much that powers the story, and how um, I think a lot of times when reporters struggle putting their stories together, a lot of the times it's because they haven't done enough reporting. There isn't enough there. There. Uh, it was also really nice to have Katie, and I think we've talked about this before. Like letting somebody bring a third party to an interview. Like Maggie and Anthony were so traumatized during that first year, just living in the moment. They didn't remember a lot, mm-hmm. especially not the good stuff. And so it was nice to triangulate back with Katie separately and have her remind Maggie and Anthony of some of those things. It was very helpful to have a third person there. And we, like, so you're going to meet, you met Katie in this installment. You're going to meet some other minor characters as we go along. But that was another thing that we had, 
a challenge because there are so many people in this orbit. Uh, you know, the Maggie has a big family. Um, Anthony has family. There are all these scientists and researchers. There's three nurses a day that he been, Yeah, there are all these nurses that take care of Lincoln over time. There are therapists who come in and work with him. So, um, you know, we, we're very conscious of how many names we're throwing out of people. In fact, there was a little stretch here um, um, you know, in just talking about, oh, I guess that was in the last installment, we talked about all the different scientists who got involved and we didn't name them all because we didn't want to invest you in people who aren't going to be major players later on. So um, so anyway, that was one of the challenges, of course, like we talked about the choosing scenes. And another thing is, um, like the girl in the window, your star character here can only, you know, is just learning to communicate at this point to some degree. And then, you know, he has he's limited as he goes along, which is, uh, you've been there. You've been through that challenge. Yeah, and my favorite part about doing these stories, especially these immersive stories, is getting in the heads of the people I'm writing about. And there was no way to get in Danny's head and the girl in the window. There was no way to get in Lincoln's head, at least not in the beginning. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, yeah, so that's a huge challenge. Let's talk about the abortion scene a little bit because um, – I, obviously, that's a big moment. We, you know, we knew it was like, I think we were both dreading it in a way because we knew we had to. I mean, I think I wanted to skip it if I remember correctly. <laughs> I mean, and amazingly, these people were willing. I mean, this couple is really unusual. I mean, they were not only willing to let you go along for this long, but to to share with you some of the the worst moments of this journey. And um, so that was a that was another place where it was like, well, we know we've got to include it. And then how much do you include? And we went back and forth with that a lot. In fact, I mean, again, Neil, Neil Brown, uh, our, our contributing editor who kept, um, like, he kept wanting us to slow down the drama, the dramatic moments, he wanted to slow them down a little bit, which is fine. You know, we, we, we tease ourselves about you don't want to make it melodramatic you know there is a there's a line at which it's like you've drawn you know you squeeze too much out of that moment unhallmark me yeah and the unhallmark <laughs> yes um but uh i don't know at the end of the day how do you feel about that moment when you were reading it again i mean i i wanted to skip over it because it felt like a, an aside in a way but the more i thought about it and the more i spent time with maggie it came up a lot it came up a lot for her, and yeah, she has yeah. a little shrine to him in her bedroom, and she kept a journal, which people always ask if someone journaled, did you journal during this process? Well, yes. Can you find your journal? And she did. And so it was, like, so helpful to put her back in that moment of that place and time. She, she'd come a long way to get out of that, and it had been horrible for her. But to be able to go back to that space and read the journal again was also really helpful for me to experience that with her again, you know. I think we've been conscious throughout this whole story about how they're going to be judged by readers, um, you know. Um, and of course, the abortion is obviously one of those pivotal scenes. But quite honestly, people may judge them for choosing to keep him alive, for you know, spending all of taxpayers' dollars to help um, help with his care. Uh, you know, we we kind of we really don't know what this reaction is going to be and how judgmental people are going to be about this couple and their decisions. Well, and I hope people can put themselves in a place to realize, like, they didn't think he was going to be like that forever. You know, it might have been a different decision if they hadn't had, back to the four-letter word of hope, (laughs) if they hadn't had hope that one day things might change for him, that he might be able to get a shot at normalcy. I don't know if the decision would have been the same, you know, but I don't think that, I hope readers don't 
don't judge them for thinking like, oh, we're going to keep this vegetable kid alive because he's not. He's in there. You know, it's the idea of like, we had a reference to this and I know we took it out, but the idea of Stephen Hawking, you know, even if your body is so terribly broken, it doesn't mean your mind can't do amazing things. And even if Lincoln never got able to, to breathe on his own or walk on his own, he's well, we'll see this later, but he's a brilliant kid, so you don't know what you would be denying the rest of the world if you said, don't give this kid a chance, you know? Well, and they didn't really think it was un under their control either. I mean, they, they didn't know whether he'd live a week or two weeks or th three months or, you know, they, and I think I think you've, all the way through this process, there's always been that sort of, even for you guys who were reporting it, you never knew if you were going to get a call that says, okay, the journey's over now. Right. Um, because he's precarious. I mean, he is a medically fragile child, and and the odds are what the odds are, and so uh, you just never know. But um, this will be a recurring theme. But I know, again, on that sort of whole idea of uh, the scenes and being very not only looking at it in terms of what scenes you're selecting for this story, but how many of the scenes over the course of this whole series, which ones are we going to use? And I know you had to cut a lot that were duplicative, really. They were moment, nice moments. There could have been something where he had some breakthrough, or it could be a really sad moment. Um, but how many times can you go down the same path? So that was a challenge. And, um, and also, we, like here, we really sort of tried to set up the idea of what it takes to, to you know, what's, what, what is that sort of setup? And how do you keep him alive? And when you're the caretakers, what do you have to do? And so, I mean, we nod to it a little bit as you go along, but we we try not to repeat again and again the same kind of things. Yeah, I, I think one thing I'm missing in the story that I wanted to do more of was like a day in the life of Lincoln. You know, like wake up with him in the morning and go to bed with him at night. But it was so much the same in terms of what the routine was like, and it was so much a process, you know, right. that I, I think this section is probably more generic than, than diving in deep on a single day, you know. Right, right. Okay, so this was the boy, and this was Lincoln's kind of emerging as a as a character, really, and the fact that that he is a personality, not just um, you know, it's not all just about the parents. So this was this was that that chapter. All right, if you have a question for Lane uh, about this particular installment or any of the stories in Lincoln's shot, please email it to writelane at tampabay.com. That's W R I T E L A N E at tampabay.com and join us next week, Wednesday morning, as we continue to discuss Lincoln's shot. This podcast was produced by Monica Hernan. Music was composed and performed by Dan DeGregory. Thanks for listening. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 